rest of us, let's open up to Revelation chapter 15. Working our way through Revelation. Just to review, because we've been going over this some pretty heavy stuff the last couple of weeks. If we could uh, review chapter, if, we, if you remember chapter 12 through 14, we've been going through some uh, characters. Seven performers during the Great Tribulation. We had the woman, which is Israel. We had the red dragon, Satan, the child of the woman, which is Jesus Christ. You remember, Satan was sitting there crouching, ready for this child to come forward and went ahead and was about to kill it, but no, got away. Michael the archangel wars with the dragon. And we had the dragon persecutes the woman, remnant of Israel. So we had these seven performers, and then we get to number seven, which is the next one, which is uh, uh, the beast. 7.1, 7.2, so beast 1.0, you know, beta version, no. Uh, but the wild beast out of the sea, the Antichrist is what kind of most people refer to him. Then also the beast out of the earth, uh, a religious leader, the, the, they also call him the uh, false prophet. And so uh, these two turkeys are going to cause a lot of trouble here coming up. And as we go forward, we moved into chapter 14. 14. Uh, I like what David Guzik said about it. He said, Revelation 14 seems to describe the consummation of all things, ending with the fury of the battle of Armageddon. So chapter 14 began with the physical return of Christ to Mount Zion with 144,000. Remember that? And then we had the angel with the proclamation of the everlasting gospel going through the air. And it ends with the Lord in judgment. We saw the reaping of a harvest, not the harvest that we hope for, but the harvest that is to come. And we remember it said that the grapes were ripe, almost overripe. And Jesus talked about it uh, back in Matthew 24, that at the end times the angel is going to come, they're going to reap those, those people, some to everlasting destruction, some to uh, uh, you know, eternal life. But he sends his angels to reap, and they're thrown into the wine press where the wrath of God is poured out on them, and their suffering never ceases. It doesn't stop. We can't imagine that. The sad thing about human beings, and this is kind of, I think, of, I think we each have this bias, is that we try to mold God into our image, our idea of what we want him to be. A God that meets our needs. Now, is he a God that meets our needs? Absolutely, our deepest needs. And needs we don't even know that we have, that actually he designed us for, he meets those. Gets pretty crazy. But the idea, God God is a God of love. Is he not the God of love? Amen. It just, the scriptures burst forward with that. Blows us away. Yes. And so our need, in our deep need for love, God is a God of love. And sometimes we have the tendency to go, I'm going to go ahead and skim over the wrath section. Not very fun. And obviously, I don't think it's God's heart. He doesn't make it fun. He makes it dead serious when he talks about this stuff. But it's hard for us to comprehend how can God be a God of love and yet a God of wrath. That's just, and so therefore we change our theology to meet our understanding of God instead of just reading what he says and accepting all of it. That's hard. 
How can a God of love allow eternal punishment? This has got to be some kind of idiom for something. And then I end up refusing to accept who God reveals himself to be. A God who is love, yet at the same time is just. You know, we can do it the other way. Some of you, anybody have real messed up backgrounds? Scout people, okay. No one in here, I would never. God is a God of just, and we, and we go the other way around. Hellfire and brimstone is our message, right? Justice. We kind of leave out the God. Yeah, but you got to repent, man. You're going to die, you know? And we're all about that. We can do it the other way. Because how could God forgive people who are so evil? These are things I was just thinking about. And we mold God into a God that meets our needs instead of conforming our understanding to who He really is. A God who, yes, is just, but He's also a God of love. And so many more attributes that we don't even realize, you know? Can't comprehend. And so we worship. Because He is love, because He is just, because He's righteous in His judgments, because He's merciful, because He's forgiveness. You know, we look at Matt. Matt's bent one way. He has all these problems. But God, he has all these things at once. And he's perfect in all of them. And so I think this is, this is really important because I don't like to dwell on the wrath part. I want to skip forward to Jesus, you know, and everything's happy, right? But when we deny or minimize one of his eternal attributes, when we deny or minimize it, we try to just push it aside and not accept it, we end up losing out on so much. Like when we say that God is love and we just focus on that part, and yeah, it is true, and we, we deny that he, there is a punishment, and there, we deny that there is this eternal situation that's going to happen for those who reject Him, and it's going to go on and on. When we try to change our theology and say, no, it's just annihilation, they'll, they'll eventually they'll go away and all this stuff, we cheapen the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Because of what love did to save so much. You see? There was no one, if everybody's just annihilated and it just goes away, then what happens? What are you really being saved from? I know we might have different theological opinions, but I'm just saying search the scriptures and don't, you know, I mean, allow it to say what it's saying. And just wrestle with it with the Lord and don't and, and realize we all come from different backgrounds. I have a set of lenses through which I see scripture. I have biases. But try to just allow it to speak to my heart. And when I don't like something about it, so what? May I conform to him and not him be conformed to me. Amen. So we preach the gospel, the good news. What's the good news? God offers peace, eternal peace through Jesus Christ. You don't have to experience the wrath. Amen.
Now, we're going to talk about wrath and all that stuff in a few minutes and judgment and wonderful things, but God offers peace to Jesus Christ right now. If you're alienated, if you've been far from God, you know, the enemy lies to us. He thinks, you know, some people walk around thinking that, okay, I'm going to go to hell and I'm going to go party with Satan forever and ever. That's a lie. Sorry, hell is designed for him to go into to be tormented. Forever and ever and ever, we read about it. It does not stop. And those who reject Christ and have taken the mark of the beast also in the future here, all these types of things, will experience that. And God doesn't want that so much that he sent his only son to stop it. And because God is just, because he is a just God, he can't just simply erase the punishment because it would be against his very character. He's not like the state of California that just makes a new law to change things. Sorry, I come from California, so. Okay, I better leave now. <laughs> Ushers. I was kidding. Never be ashamed of who God reveals himself to be. There's a day of judgment, and we're all going to give account for what we have done. And the only way that we'll escape is to have surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ while we still have breath in our bodies. Now is the day of salvation. That day of judgment is not a day to be saved. It's now. So anyone who's willing to receive Jesus, man, do it. So Revelation 14 describes the consummation of all things. And now in chapter 15, John's going to kind of go back and describe God's judgment in, in more detail. So what we've been experiencing is God talks about it, gets to a certain place, and then he goes, all right, now I'm going to go back and give you some more detail. And he goes forward a little bit and gets to a place and goes, okay, now, now we're going to get really into the detail, okay? And this shows that Revelation's not necessarily chronological. There's some hard issues of, of understanding where things fit in. I have a hard time understanding everything. But as we go back, we're going to, I mean, as we continue, we're going to go into um, the, the final seven uh, bowls of wrath. And these bowls are censers. You know, if you remember, they, you know, people swinging censers in, in places. That's kind of what the idea is here. So 15 verse 1, And I saw heaven, in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is complete. And again, seven in the Scripture, Often an idiom for just things being complete, seven days in the week, you know, uh, the seven churches, seven eleven, all these other things. And so we have the seven last plagues given by seven angels. And this is interesting that with the seven last plagues, that because with them God's wrath was complete. There's two words for wrath, and in in the Greek there, and I know you need to know this, but thymos, which is a volatile, passionate anger. And orge, which is anger from a settled disposition. And this one's the first one. Just crazy, flash hot, fierce, intense wrath. Doesn't necessarily come through in our English as well, but that's what's going on. And I saw, verse 2, what, I, what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire. And fire often is a representative of judgment in Scripture. And the sea of glass, some think that uh, it, it resembles the... Uh, the basin 
the, the bronze laver in the tabernacle had the water in it, and so the word of God, and so you have this, the word and the fire. Take that for what it is, but uh, anyway, some people believe that. But that sea of glass with glowing fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. And they held harps given to them by God, and they sang the song of God's servant, Moses, and of the Lamb. See the law and the, pro, uh, the, uh, the law right there in grace kind of together? It's pretty interesting. And this is it. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Worshiping God is an honor. These saints were given the honor of performing before the Lord to sing, not just performing as in self, but they're focusing on the king. They're crying out to him, declaring that what he's doing is right and just. Singing in the presence of the king, declaring his deeds and his character. It's privilege for us today, today to sing to the Lord, to play to the Lord, to croak to the Lord, whatever it is you do. Amen? There's so much to learn from this song. We don't have much time to go into it. But one aspect that I really want to focus on is that today there's so much in our music that's kind of interesting. But let's just read it real quickly again. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name, for you alone are worthy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Do you see the focus of worship here? Now, we have a lot of I and me in our, in our worship songs today, amen? Now, we read King David, there's a lot of I and me in there. We have a relationship with God on this side of the earth, and there is that. But, I'm just going to share something experientially. I don't know. I, I talk about the I and me, but when my heart stays on the I and me, it doesn't really, it's kind of depressing, amen? amen? But when we focus on who he is, and we start singing, how great thou art. You put everything together, you're awesome, and our eyes start to get focused on who he is and what he's done. Somehow our circumstances start to be put in place. And faith starts to work in our hearts. And we, become to be, we begin to be changed. And that is why I, I love a lot of the old hymns. There's beautiful doctrine. I'm sorry, folks, the music stinks most of the time. What? Just like you guys grew up and you, you had some people not liking your music, right? But the words just blow us away. I'm sure if we were busting out the Psalms right now, all of us would go, man, this music stinks. <laughs> like in the original. But the words, they prevail. And they minister to our hearts in a way that's just amazing. And, and I, I love some of the music, actually, the, the way it is it's written. 
uh, you know, in especially more of the Celtic type stuff that they were doing. And, but I'm just saying, it's just amazing people. I recommend uh, 101 hymn stories and 101 more hymn stories, stories about what these people were going through when they wrote these songs. Just a little sidebar, do that. It's just awesome. It's rich. It's our heritage. It blows us away. And uh, anyways, but worship. Our hearts should desire to sing to hit praises to Him, no matter what style of music. No matter what style of music, no matter what you sound like, because it's not about you. Amen? It's about Him. So I want to hear some yodeling to the Lord. Make some glorious noise to Him, because it's not about you, it's about Him. And something happens in our hearts. We're released. And I'm not just talking about Sunday mornings together. That is powerful. But by yourself. You know what I'm saying? Just singing to the Lord. Now, some of you, I, I'm, it's like talking math in, in English. You know, you're telling me to do math? You know, or some of you like math. I don't like math. But I mean, for me, it's like, ah, oh, you want me to do algebra? It's not going to happen. Okay, Whatever. See, the, thing, the, the cool thing about God, like I was talking about before, is, is we tie, kind of make God into what we want him to be. When he tells us, he ascribes to us how he is to be worshipped. And so we conform to what he wants. That's hard. That strikes where at us? In our pride. Now, that's easy for me to say because I play guitar and I get up in here and sing. But there's other things in Scripture where the Lord says to me, Hey, Matt, shut your mouth. What? Yeah, be still and know that I am the Lord. Stop talking so much. Be quiet. But don't you know I love to express myself, God? Hey, be quiet. Yes, Lord. Because I'll worship you in that way. You know what I'm saying? we just broken and we're open to it. But we see these people just going for it with harps. I tend to think they're electric guitars, but <laughs> and they have like effects pedals and everything. It's pretty cool. No, I can't add or take away to this, so never mind. Strike that from the record. And after this, I looked and I saw in heaven the temple. That is the tabernacle of the covenant law. And it was opened. Wait a second. Where is the Covenant, the uh, Ark of the Covenant. And I looked and I saw in heaven the temple and the Ark of the Covenant. You know, it's so funny. So many people are worried about where the Ark of the Covenant is on earth. It's always been in heaven. And the things we have down here are shadows of the reality. Remember that? So don't get fixed up on those things. Put your eyes on heaven. Amen. And we're not focused on a building down here. We're focused on a person, Jesus Christ. And out of the temple came seven angels with seven plagues. And they were dressed in clean and shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bulls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were complete. This scene reminds me of, remember, the dedication of Solomon's temple. When he dedicated, and all of a sudden, the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests were no longer able to minister. And it, and it shows us that even in heaven, 
that I'm, there are probably aspects of God's glory that we're not going to be able to take. I mean, he is just awesome. He is altogether transcending. I don't know. But it also, when this is so serious, he says everybody out of the room. So I don't know. Take it for what it says. Chapter 15. So that's been a build-up to these seven last plagues, and we're going to bust through this here in seven minutes or ten minutes. Now chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of wrath, of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image going to be a little bit reminiscent of Moses' plagues on Egypt. You notice that the, uh, these boils, they went on the people who took the mark. Uh, it might be interesting. It might be that people who did not receive the mark will not have these, just as Israel was not affected in Egypt. So who knows? But this is going to be global. Poured out on Egypt. This is going to be global. And so the second, verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned to blood like that of a dead person. And every living thing in the sea died. It was like blood, like that of a dead person. Now we read, we read about the third of the ocean being struck. Now it's the whole thing. This is the complete wrath of God being poured out. These bowls of wrath are complete upon the earth. 100% oceans affected. And the third angel poured out his bowl, verse 4, on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One. You who are, were and, uh, who are and who, are, who were. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and now you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. It's only fitting for those who reject the living water and who go after the blood of the saints to, get, to be given over to the desires that they have. And here they are to drink blood. Ugh. And I heard, verse 7, on the altar, that, and I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. This might be an angel speaking, or it might be those guys below. Remember the, the martyred saints that we read about in chapter 6 and 8? Crying out, yes, true and just are your judgments. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared with intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. This global warming has nothing to do with carbon footprint. It has to do with the footprint of sin and rebellion and the unwillingness to repent, to turn back to God, to cry out for mercy, to acknowledge that we've rebelled. Notice it says there, they were seared with intense heat. They cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and to glorify him. Even in this ten, intense wrath, they refused to glorify him. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. And people gnawed their tongues 
in agony. And they curse the God of heaven because their pains and their sores. But they refused to repent for what they had done. The gnashing of teeth, the gnawing on the tongues. It's a preview of hell on earth. It's not good. It is harsh. It's horrible. And notice, I want you to think about this. This is very important. The wrath of God doesn't produce repentance. The wrath of God doesn't produce repentance. That's not what it's designed for. It's his kindness that leads to repentance. It's his mercy that grabs our hearts. Amen? So when I'm reading at this, I I don't want to be flippant about it. We don't gloss over the fact that this is coming. But, you know, the scare tactics, hopefully, you know, we're not taking it as, oh, yeah, just trying to scare me into the kingdom. But hopefully there's a reality in our heart going, whoa, I need his mercy. I need his grace. And you run to the arms of Christ. Save me, God, because I know I deserve that. And that's who we hold on to day and night. And that's who we abide in, Jesus Christ. He's our only hope. Amen? It's purpose, the purpose of God's wrath is not to save. It's to harden and to execute justice. The failure of men to respond with repentance shows that knowledge or experience of judgment will not change man's sinful condition. Those who are not won by grace will never be won. You ever spend some time just sitting there watching guys just rifle through the, you know, through jail? Just over and over and over and over again. Consequence, so what? There's some people's hearts are just hard. It doesn't change. I'm not trying to sit there and point a finger and judge them, but I mean, even in our own hearts, those of us who aren't in that, that's just something we can see. But we know in our own hearts how hard we get to when God talks to us, we say, no, 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 no. He's all right. And then we start to reap the consequences of that in our life. Wrath hardens the heart permanently, pours out what they justly deserve. And we're all given a specific time to repent and to turn to Christ for him to save us. God's grace is present right now. I don't care what you've done, how long you've been sitting in these chairs. If you haven't called out to Jesus, call out. His grace is here. He loves you. Doesn't want you to go to plan B. Wants you to be with him. Don't let your heart get to the point where you reject God's grace. You know, grace, I I think there's there's very simple ways of defining these things, but grace is so complex. But let me just give you a a little layman's term that I I kind of do. But grace is giving you what you don't deserve. (laughs) Mercy is not giving you what you do deserve. 
God's grace, giving you what you don't deserve, eternal life, what Matt does not deserve, eternal life. Thank you, Lord. Pharaoh had opportunity after opportunity, but what happened? After each of one of those plagues, it said that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Another plague happened. It said Pharaoh hardened, Pharaoh hardened his heart and had the people of Israel come back. He, he hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. He's hardened, hardened his heart. And then the last one, what happens? God hardened his heart. When God hardens your heart, it's done. Respond now in these areas of our lives. Amen? Don't, let's not, not deal with that. There's issues of sin in your life, sin in my life. Get it done. Get out to the, go to the cross. Thank you for your forgiveness, Lord. Let's let's work on this, right? Not I'll never do it again. Yeah, you, how long does that last, everybody? Until the next time you do it. God has to work something deep in our hearts to change us, and that work of grace in our hearts it makes us new people when we allow when we abide in Him. And then our lives change from the inside out. It's beautiful. I got to move on. We got two minutes. You skip, 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 skip. Ah, I got to read Spurgeon. I know who. <laughs> I normally don't like to quote Spurgeon, but man, he hit the nail on the head. This is real repentance. When the man gives glory to the justice, justice of God, even though it condemns him. Wow. Oh, my hearer, do you thus repent? Is sin really sinful to you? Do you see it? Do you see its desert of hell? If not, your repentance needs to be repented of. I know that's a little heady, but you can take that one home and chew on it later. But uh, uh, chapter, uh, uh, sorry, 16, verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs, and they came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs. No guessing here. That's what they are. And they go out to the kings, kings of the world to gather them for battle on the great day of the Almighty. So the kings of the east are going to meet in the valley of Jezreel, as we read about in, in the last uh, chapter, chapter 14, and also here in... In just two verses, uh, in verse 16 here, you know, perhaps this is China, India, I have no idea. Whatever they are, they're the kings of the east. They're deceived by evil spirits from the false prophet, from the Antichrist and the dragon. They're all gathered together to go make war against God. Whether they're warring against Israel or God, I don't know. They're going to end up fighting Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is going to annihilate them. It's interesting. They're gathering in this place called Megiddo, or the Valley of Jezreel. I've been there in, in, in... in uh, Israel, you stand on Tel Megiddo, and it's a mountain. And the reason why it's a mountain is because so many civilizations have been destroyed upon it. It's high now. You know, we're living on Civilization One here. But you're standing on this, this hill, and then there's this valley that goes way down and over, kind of like here. But imagine there's a hill on the other side. And on the other side of that hill is a little city called Nazareth. And it's weird. And perhaps, uh, you know, there's little Jesus hanging out on the hillside looking over where it's all going to take down going to end. It's just pretty interesting. But, and so that was the uh, sixth seal. We have the three demons coming out of there. And so the sixth seal is the three demons looking like frogs. That's wonderful. 
And now we have a pause between the sixth and the seventh bowl of wrath, as we do every single time. And that's only one verse this time, verse 15. Pretty cool. Look, I come as a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed, so as to not get naked and be shamefully exposed. So the Lord gives us a little beatitude there. I encourage you to go read that. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that that is in Hebrew is called Armageddon or Harmageddon. And then uh, verse 17, then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. And so tremendous was the earthquake. The great city, Jerusalem, split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon, the great, and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Remember I talked about those two words for, for wrath? They're both used here. So it's just like wrath to the 10th power, okay? Every island fled away. And the mountains could not be found. And from the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people. Okay, you ever gone bowling? 16 pounds? Oh, man. Imagine if that was dropped from the sky. Go right through your house. Into your basement. Who knows what? Now 100 pounds. Hailstones. I don't even know if you could hide under a freeway overpass. I mean, what... That's horrible. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people, and they repented. Is that what it says? And they cursed God on account of the plagues because the plague was so terrible. We know that Satan is the prince in the power of the air. The last plague is poured out upon him. I believe this is directed towards his kingdom. Severe earthquake, leveling all, no more Maui, no more Himalayas, gone. Everything's leveled. Hailstones falling down, and yet men are still hardened. Our responsibility before God is not to change the hearts of people. Our responsibility before God is to preach the gospel. Let the Holy Spirit do the work. There are going to be people who will reject it. And most will. So you are just responsible for what God's placed in your hands. Preach the gospel. Because there are some out there who are headed towards this. And I believe the Lord wants to use you as a blessing in their life to pull them out. Amen? Amen. Love you guys. The Lord loves you. You have a ministry ahead of you. Like I said last week, get ready to go into your mission field. They're all around you. We'll preach the gospel next week. Easter, invite someone. Not to get numbers at the church. I just want people to hear the gospel. Amen? Invite them to your house, preach the gospel. Whatever it takes. It doesn't have to be in the building. You know what I'm saying? But get out there. Take steps of faith for the Lord and He will do amazing things in and through you. Let's stand.
Father, we, we praise you for today. We thank you that we are no longer children of wrath, but we're children of the King. Now, Lord, let's also have your heart that you desire none should perish. Help us to live our lives in a way that when we are in the end, it's like those talents that we wouldn't have buried it in the ground, but we would have invested everything we have in your kingdom, in the things that make your heart beat. The things that make your heart beat are the people right around us, our families, our kids, our wives, and our coworker, our relatives, people on the other side of the world. Open our hearts and our eyes this year. Give us a vision, your vision, Lord, for your glory, for your honor, so that people wouldn't look at this church and go, oh, yay, CCF. No, but the name of Jesus would be lifted up. And you alone, amen.